I love Jared Allen. Fear the frog. Pow! With the right hand. That's our boy Bob Schmidt. Jared Allen with the... This is the Fear the Fro podcast, a Cleveland Cavaliers and NBA podcast with Bob Schmidt. Nobody's going to subscribe. Welcome to the Fear the Fro podcast. I am your Fear the Fro host, Bob Schmidt, voice of Fox Sports Radio, lifetime Cavalier fan on this, a very special Sunday, a Sunday so special that I had to put up an emergency-ish type episode. Now, I didn't do it the moment the trade concluded because, well, quite frankly, there was a game against the team that traded us, Karis LeVert. I wanted to watch it. I didn't want to be taping a podcast at that moment. I wanted to take it in and celebrate a day that is, well, it's a once a year tradition. Right around this time of the year, a big deal gets swung. Last year, Jared Allen came over from the Nets as Karis LeVert also departed the Nets to go to the Pacers in the James Harden trade. This year, just a year removed, the Cavaliers have taken Pieces from that deal, Allen, Torian Prince coming to the Cavs, Torian Prince rerouted last offseason for Ricky Rubio, who, while excelling in his role as backup point guard, unfortunately suffers a season-ending injury, and now, today, packaged with the 2022 first-round pick of the Cleveland Cavaliers, lottery protected, packaged with Houston's second-round pick in 2022, and a Jazz pick in 2027, second-round pick. Coming back to the Cavs are Karis LeVert and the 2022 second-round pick of the Miami Heat. But the main thing here is that we discussed this in part last week as we were analyzing the possibilities of different deadline deals, and I've spoken at LeVert, or about LeVert, rather, at length on this podcast. My feeling as recently as Friday, as the man destroyed my fantasy squad, dropping 28 points in the first half on 12 for 14 shooting, as I was watching that and realizing we were just days away from this man potentially being a Cleveland Cavalier, even after watching him go absolute inferno on Friday night, my feelings were still this. I like Karis LeVert as a player. I had reservations, though, about any deal that included a first-round pick and one of our young assets who people thought we might move. Those primarily being Isaac Okoro or Colin Sexton. Now, as it turned out, not only did the Cavs not include those guys, but they didn't even give up a second first-round pick in the exchange. Essentially what happened here was that the Cavs got Levert and the Pacers, while they probably did want two first-round picks, realized the closest they were going to get is a first-round pick and a second-round pick that belongs to a terrible, terrible, terrible team, the Houston Rockets, and they convince themselves that it's a virtual first-round pick. So they walk away with as close to two first-round picks as they probably could have got on the market and a deal which is off the books immediately. Rubio probably won't even report to the Pacers. And the Cavs get a guy who they have control of for at least all of this season and all of next season. Now, they could extend him this summer. He will be extension eligible. He makes presently just shy of $20 million, but certainly with the way he's been playing and with the guys of that ilk money-wise, Gary Trent Jr., Norman Powell, Evan Fournier, these are the guys last offseason who got around $20 million. You can certainly make the case that Karis LeVert is going to want more than that because also 
a relevant consideration here is that while most of the Cavs' core is exceptionally young, Karis LeVert, while still young, don't get me wrong, he's 27, he will be 28 this summer. Just a year ago, in the offseason, we moved Larry Nance Jr. under the assumption that, well, he doesn't fit up with the timeline as well, and he may not be here when this core matures. We're bringing in LeVert, possibly to extend him, but if nothing else, I think the first thing we need to do in breaking down this trade is consider all the dominoes that could fall from here on out. Now, best case scenario, this is how it plays out. Levert immediately plugs in, whether in a starter role or super sixth man role for us, and provides a lot of what we've been lacking. More offense from the wing, some secondary play creation that we've been lacking because essentially we have Garland, who's out right now, and we have Rondo, who it's a lot to ask of a guy at his age and advanced years in the league to carry and produce at that level consistently. So you get a night like tonight where Rondo was very good and had his best. I don't think it's even debatable. This was his best game as a Cavalier, finishing with 15 points, finishing with 12 assists, only a couple turnovers, and shot reasonably well. He was 5 for 10 from the field, attacked the basket, got guys on their heels, scored some buckets by just catching guys off guard. He was good tonight. But this is not a man who you want playing 30 minutes a night every night. And Osman, for what was an incredible second half showing, Osman finished the game shooting 50% from the floor with 22 points. But it was a tale of two halves for Osman because he was absolutely brutal in the first half and absolutely unstoppable in the second half. 16 points in the fourth quarter. So my point is this. We're a deep team. A best-case scenario for this trade is one of two things. We bring in Levert. He's a seamless fit. We go as far as we can go in the postseason, and we decide, hey, we want to extend this guy. He's a good fit for our roster moving forward. The Cavs are projected to be slightly over the salary cap line, but well under the luxury tax line next season, as things stand at this moment. Now, there are some things that may happen that will make us dangerously close to that luxury tax line. The first and biggest of those is Colin Sexton. What happens to him? Do we retain him? Do we do what the Bulls did, which is essentially don't relinquish his rights, hold on to him, throughout the whole period of free agency until somebody comes to you and gives you an asset to sign him to a deal that you don't want to match, and you end up saving face by getting something for someone who may not be in your long-term plans. Now, I'm just discussing that as a possibility. I do not believe that is the way that the Cavs should operate here. The Cavs could reacquire Rubio when he hits free agency using one of the exceptions, and they could keep Sexton. They're allowed to do that. The only reason they didn't would be because they feel like it's too much money to tie up long-term. But even in that scenario, there are exit strategies which will recoup an asset, either from Sexton or from Levert in a trade at next year's deadline. You should not link Levert and Sexton as an either-or proposal. I absolutely think there is a place for Garland, for Sexton, for Levert, for Osman, for Okoro, because Osman and Okoro and Levert, they can all play minutes at the three. We're having to play Dean Wade heavier minutes. We're having to play Stevens heavier minutes. And I love those guys, but they just don't necessarily have the ceiling 
that some of these other guys have. Now, that is the shame in all of this, is that a week from now, I'll probably be opining about how Stevens was squeezed out of time and how Wade was squeezed out of time because Wade had his moments in this game too. 10 points, five boards, but hit a couple of big threes late in the game when we needed them. And Stevens had a huge spurt there where he scored back-to-back buckets. He went at the rim. He was very good as well, I thought, for what's... These are essentially your ad players. Your whatever they give you is more than you expected. We go into the summer. We decide either to extend Levert or not, in which case he'll be there for one more season, at which point we could trade him prior to the deadline to somebody who is quote-unquote a contender looking for that last piece for whatever we can recoup for him. Or we could just go into unrestricted free agency and hope he chooses to stay with us at that point. He may prefer that because certainly he'll have a better chance to get his full market value if there are other suitors than just coming to terms on an extension with us. But we have extended a lot of people before they hit free agency. Osman, Larry Nance Jr., Kevin Love. The key difference between those guys and Levert is all of those guys had existed in our system and enjoyed playing here when they came to those terms. Levert will only get essentially half a season to decide, does he want to tie his fortunes to this franchise, or does he want to play out the next year in his contract year and try to get more on the open market or a better situation for him? You should look at our front office and say, well, that's kind of our MO. Don't be shocked at all if Levert gets an extension this summer. Now to pivot to Colin Sexton, the question then arises as to how do we handle this summer with Colin Sexton? There are different ways that you could approach it. You could approach it the Lowry marketing way. If you've decided that he's just not a fit for your culture or your chemistry, which I don't think is fair, but I mean, you have to give the front office the benefit of the doubt at this point because they have knocked it out of the park with their assessment of players' skill sets and how they'll fit together. So if that is in fact what they've decided, they can either handle it the way that the Bulls handled Lowry Markinen. Make sure you give him the qualifying offer, you threaten to match, and you get some asset out of him. A second round pick, a first round pick. It all kind of depends on what the offer is. If somebody offers him $30 million a season, well then the Cavs probably will get little to nothing back because they will have far less bluffing ability to say, well, we're going to match it if you don't give us a second round or first round pick. But if somebody offers Sexton 5 for 100 it's far more plausible that even with Levert in tow, the Cavs might choose to match that because Colin Sexton is worth that. That is a very shoppable deal at any point during the contract because this is going to be between the ages of 23 and 28. If he signed a deal like that, the Cavs would match that and then just take their chances of recouping something on the trade market if everybody didn't integrate seamlessly when they're all healthy next year. And that would put them in a scenario where they can leverage more if they don't intend to keep him. A first-round pick, maybe even more than a first-round pick, because, again, Levert got a first-round pick as a guy with an injury history who's 27 years old, almost 28. Sexton is young, and his production has been clockwork consistent. Not in a winning system, of course, but then again, Levert just had that one miracle season with the Nets when D'Lo was there and Dinwiddie was rolling. Since then. He hasn't really been a part of a winner either. There's another way that the Cavs could approach Sexton. Rather than Lowry Markinen, let's look at a different free agent deal last year. Josh Hart and the New Orleans Pelicans. Now, during the summer last year, I know because I kind of hoped he would end up with the Cavs, Josh Hart was rumored 
to be a guy being targeted with a lot of different teams, mid-level exception. But herein lied the problem. He was a restricted free agent. And by all accounts, for mid-level money, $9 million a season, the Pelicans would have matched without a second thought. So Hart was between a rock and a hard place. He felt he was owed more than the mid-level exception, but without outside leverage to do it, his options were play for the qualifying offer and head into free agency, or hope that a team gave him the offer sheet. The Pelicans and Hart, though, came to a creative solution. So the compromise was this. Josh Hart signed a three-year deal worth $38 million. That was more than mid-level money. But what the team demanded as a concession was that the second year of that deal was non-guaranteed. So in a worst-case situation, Hart comes back, he plays poorly, the team terminates the contract, and they essentially just gave him $3 million above mid-level for one season. However, there was something in it for Josh Hart as well. If he played well and the Pelicans wanted to keep him around, Josh Hart had a player option for the third and final year of the deal for $13 million as well. So effectively, the interests of all sides were guarded. If Hart was bad with the Pelicans, they just don't pick up the option the second season and he goes to unrestricted free agency. He gets his freedom. They're not tied to his cap number. If he succeeds, they have him for at least two seasons. And if he really succeeds, he has the ability in the third year of that contract to terminate that year and hit unrestricted free agency sooner. Because keep in mind, with an offer sheet from another team, the minimum length of that contract would have had to be at least two years. An outside team like the Cavs couldn't have just swooped in and said, we'll give you a one-year $18 million offer sheet. It's not allowable. Teams had a hard time justifying overpaying for Hart on a long-term contract when most people view Hart as what he is, a good supporting player, but not somebody that you want to tie up big dollars to long-term just to lure him away from the situation he's in. This was essentially the perfect middle ground of balancing the interests of the team, which were don't lose Josh Hart for nothing, with the interests of the player, which were I believe I'm worth more than the money you want to commit to me long-term, so if I'm going to stay, I want an early exit option that will get me to unrestricted free agency as soon as possible. I want to bet on myself, essentially. A similar, a similar negotiation could take place with Sexton. Let's say in this hypothetical, the Cavs' desires are to keep Sexton for around five for a hundred million. But Sexton's camp insists, no, I'm a $25 million a year player. I want five for 125. I want John Collins' money. Well, they could strike a middle ground. The Cavs could essentially say, listen, we'll pay you $22 million this season with an ability to terminate your deal in year two or with a player option for you in year three. Say like a three-year, $65 to $70 million deal where everybody gets some portion of what they want. Colin gets a slightly higher salary than the Cavs may be willing to commit to over a four- to five-year period. In exchange for that, Colin has the chance to, if he proves he's worth more money, pull the ripcord by year three and get to unrestricted free agency sooner. The Cavs don't lose him for nothing. He gets to bet on himself. And in the meantime, he still gets paid handsomely to do it 
but at less of a long-term commitment to the Cavs, which clearly they're probably going to be tentative about as they're analyzing, well, is Levert or Sexton a better long-term fit with this roster? A very bold way to proceed would be to give both an extension to Levert and a long-term extension to Colin Sexton, because you would be tying up huge money to two guys who you haven't even seen play with this current winning iteration of the Cavs, while Garland hasn't even hit his payday yet. I understand the concern that, well, we don't have the money to throw huge dollars at Garland, at Levert, at Lowry, and at Sexton. You can't pay all that money to all those guys. There's only one ball, et cetera, et cetera. I get that. But you don't necessarily have to make the decision this summer. The thing about rookie contracts is they're so valuable due to the restricted free agent rights. It gives you the chance to figure this out before you'll be forced to risk losing anyone on free agency. Levert, you have a full season and a half before he can hit the true open market. And Sexton, you have a full season and a half. Because don't kid yourself, restricted free agency is stacked hugely in the team's favor. Is there a chance Sexton will be pissed with the Cavs' offer and play for the qualifying offer? Sure. But is there a big chance? No. Nobody wants to take a situation where they could be making $20 million and instead play for the qualifying offer, which is about $8.5 million. That's a lot of money to leave on the table. $12 million is nothing to scoff at. So if Sexton's options are signing into one of those heart-type arrangements where he gets to make more than his market value or just sticking it to the Cavs in the harshest way possible, which is to play out the qualifying offer, which would then essentially mean the Cavs will lose him for nothing. I just don't see that happening. There's too big of a financial incentive to Sexton to meet the Cavs halfway for him to really dig in here. Just because Levert is in tow now and will be around for the remainder of this season does not mean that you have to jettison Sexton. There will be other fan bases and other teams who try to spin this as some sort of sign that the Cavs are done with Sexton. But don't kid yourself. That is not the case. If anything, they just got themselves an insurance policy. And we have a whole season to assess, okay, do we want to extend them this summer? Or do we want to let this contract play out? And if we decide that it's a not a long-term fit, then they have up until the deadline next year to move it. But at $19 million and only 28 years of age, he is still going to be a very movable piece, even if the Cavs essentially treated this like a tryout. As far as I'm concerned, it should be dictated by how they play out. I know people like to dig themselves into these camps of, Colin Sexton needs to be a starter, and he's, he's gone all out, and he's proven so much, and you can't disrespect him like this. I don't think it really matters. There's plenty of minutes to go around, and we're going to see how this shakes out. But ultimately, the only thing that should impact the team's decisions from here on out is who is the best fit alongside the trio of guys who have established themselves as the fulcrum of the offense, and that being Garland, Mobley, and Allen. That dynamic, you take any one of those guys out, and you see a shift in how efficient our offense is. The tail moving forward is going to be who best fits alongside those guys and what guys, who are the support guys, play the best together. We're seeing Osman and Love, there have been so many games where they come out and they play excellent together. Great guys to bring off the bench. And who knows, maybe 
Levert will have a chemistry with Allen from his days in Brooklyn where you decide, okay, he's the guy who should plug into the starting unit. I don't really care one way or another. I don't like moving backwards in my view, right? Sexton is out probably for the whole year. Maybe he comes back in the playoffs, but for the time being, we should be celebrating the addition of talent, not fretting about how do we solve this situation when this summer rolls around. That's a problem for then, and it's a good problem. If your problem is you have too much talent, there will always be silver linings that arise out of that. If they move Sexton, just based on the Lowry marketing deal, we can see what happened here. They got a first-round pick out of the situation for letting a guy go to a destination that he preferred playing in. They didn't even want to pay his contract anyway. So they got something for it. Colin Sexton is more valuable than Lowry Markkinen. Worst case scenario for people who look at this and say, hey, we moved a first round pick for Levert, but we still have Sexton. We didn't even need to do that. You're going to be able to move one of those guys for a first round pick. A minimal risk situation. It's very similar to how I viewed the Drummond thing. Did the Drummond thing work out? No. But why was anyone beating themselves up over trading second round picks for the opportunity? This is such a minimal gamble. They're giving up what will likely be a first-round pick that is after 20 for the opportunity to protect yourself against whatever fallout may happen with Sexton, whether it's fit with the team, whether it's contract stalemate, and depending on what happens in the playoffs, we have a three- to four-month window to see him before we even have to make that Sexton decision. A very high-ceiling hedge against whatever may happen with Colin Sexton. Because this is one of the other storylines that arose over the weekend. Colin Sexton has signed with Rich Paul and Clutch, who, by the way, also represents Darius Garland. So as much as those guys haven't got the best press in the last season, given their relationship with Ben Simmons and the Philadelphia 76ers, I don't think there's anything to be worried about in the sense that you have no control over it. You're going to get a Clutch player. This day and age, you're going to have someone on your roster or someone you're interested in who is with Clutch. In reality, I'm not that concerned about it, mainly because all the cards belong to the Cleveland Cavs here. He's a restricted free agent. And until that mechanism changes, anyone who wants to tie up money making him an offer sheet is going to have to grossly overpay if they want to go in with the confidence that the Cavs won't match. Because in my view, if somebody comes to Sexton and says, hey, we'll give you five years, $100 million, the Cavs will match that. Colin Sexton is definitely a $20 million a season player. He has that talent. He's produced at that level. And with his age what it is and with his injuries relatively minimal up until this last one, that is a gamble worth taking. If guys are going to throw $18 million at Evan Fournier, you better believe that Colin Sexton is worth keeping around for $20 million. Or at least that is my feeling on this situation. I do not believe in the idea that you cast off a guy who is lockstep in sync with the age of your core, who already knows those guys, he's in the system, he's played around them, he's succeeded here. We have not got a window to see how he's able to play in this new offense, with this new addition, Evan Mobley, with this new addition, Lowry Markkinen, with a heavy, like a healthy Kevin Love, a heavy usage, Chetty Osman producing more efficiently than ever. These are weapons we didn't have last year. In Colin Sexton's defense, the people who are ready to just forget about him, we can have it all. We can have our cake and eat it too. My belief is that the best way to operate here 
Don't rush into any decisions. See what happens this half season. See if Levert fits. See what kind of impact he has on our ball movement, our off-ball motion. Because right now, when Garland's in the fold, it's excellent. Guys are cutting. Guys are moving. I mean, just look at Osman tonight. So much of what he got, his three-pointers, his C-curls, his sprinting out in transition, and Rondo throwing that full-court pass to, to get him out in front of everyone. Those are things which, in past seasons, we haven't seen enough of. It's been too much stagnation and too much ISO offense. And I don't put that all on Sexton. The fact is he didn't have a lot of support. But I think we can look at the roster we have now and realize we've got some horses. We've got guys who can score and fill it up in a number of ways, whether that's forcing guys to foul inside and cleaning up at an elite level, which is what Jared Allen is doing, playing like a man possessed here, just dominating the Hornets and then coming out tonight and having another monster showing, even if I don't know what they were thinking, trying to take a 6'5 guy in Taylor and assume he's going to be able to do anything but foul Jared Allen. But that's, we don't need to get into the specifics of the game just yet. I still want to discuss this avert scenario. So we've got all these guys we added around him. We're going to plug Sexton in and we're going to go into next season with a backcourt rotation, potentially. They're going to have Garland. They could have Sexton and Levert. Okoro, who continues to just get better and better. And then you have Osman, who's completely salvaged his reputation after last season. You have Love, who will be on the final year of his contract. And who knows? Maybe the plan here is that you have the final year of Levert at a reasonable salary, 18 to $19 million a season. And then by the time that Love is off the books, you can afford to give both Sexton and Levert money. Now, I personally hope Love, with the way he's playing now, I would not write off keeping him around. Depending on what that number is, you could conceivably keep this core together because your highest price pieces are Kevin Love, the aging vet, whose salary is going to go down on his next contract. And everybody else, Okoro, Garland, Mobley, you'll have their restricted free agent rights because they're on their rookie deal and the ability to keep them if you want them, no matter what the cost. It's funny to think last summer we were talking about offloading Osman and Love for whatever, or some people wanted Love bought out entirely. And now you're looking at two guys who you say Osman's a complete value and should be around long term. And Love, there's no reason why you wouldn't want to extend him. He's great for chemistry. We've seen Kevin Love consistently take situations where we're playing fairly inconsistently, coming off the bench, and steady the ship. And tonight was a perfect example of his impact on the game because between he and Osman, the Cavs do not win that game without the two-man play of those guys. Rondo was very good. I thought Stevens had moments late in the game, too, where he was excellent. At the end of the day, Kevin Love finished the game with 19 points, four for eight from three-point land, and then you had Osman, who chipped in 22 himself. Those guys were the two leading scorers for the team. Rondo tied for third. Jared Allen tied for third as well. They both had 15 points, but that comeback was Osman and Love. Second half alone, Osman was 8 for 10 from the floor, hit four three-pointers, Love was 3 for 5, and every one of his buckets was a three-pointer, not to mention he got to the foul line. And it just goes to show you, starter, bench, it's not always necessarily relevant. Osman and Love both logged over 30 minutes. They were de facto starters, even if they weren't the starters tonight, because Wade played 18 minutes, Okoro played less minutes than them, Mobley even played less minutes than them. We rode the hot hands, and that is the way that a good team should function. When guys talk about, like, oh, I want to work on different rotations, that usually means you suck. If you're a good team, 
you're adjusting to what's happening on the court. And then the early part of this game, what we saw the Pacers doing was getting out and running. They were doing excellent at forcing turnovers, getting hands on balls, getting out and running, and we dug ourselves a 20-point hole. But at the end of the day, the Cavs came back from the largest deficit of the season, 20 points down, dominated. There was one point where the Cavs ripped off 19 straight points in a row. That's ridiculous. But by the middle to end of the fourth, it was a complete runaway blowout. You don't see many games like this. It was like watching two different teams take the court. So now the Cavs sit at 33-21, and 21, one game out of first place. They're essentially, they're a half game back on the Bulls, who lost their last game, and they're a game back on the Miami Heat. They're tied with the Bucks, So they could end up anywhere between three and five by All-Star break. I would say that's realistic. But with the Cavs' schedule ahead, it still is a very favorable schedule. The next game isn't until Wednesday, when they take on the Spurs a team that's not all that great, and then they get the Pacers again. And based on what we saw tonight, sure, you could look at the first quarter and say that was problematic. Certainly, the Pacers did some things which gave the Cavs trouble, but once the shots started falling, I mean, the Cavs shot like 17% from the floor in the first quarter. Once the shots started falling, the Pacers were not in the same class as the Cavs. So you should have two more victories heading into February 12th's game against the 76ers. An excellent battle for the Cavs because they're headlined by an MVP candidate, the best center in the league, Joel Embiid, and the Cavs' biggest component of their team is their imposing front line. So that should be a fun game. And those last two games before the All-Star break, the 76ers, followed by being on the road in Atlanta to take on the Hawks, we could look at a 2-2 two and two record over these next four games, two wins against the Spurs and Pacers, and then two losses. But I would say if you come out of that three and one, you have to be pretty happy. And I think that's very attainable because I could definitely see the 76ers beating the Cavaliers at home, but with the Cavaliers playing the way they are, assuming Garland's back, Levert's in tow, I don't think the Hawks are a clear-cut victory over the Cavs despite their hot play. They've won seven of their last 10. However, their most recent couple of games, they're on a two-game losing skid. But they have fought their way into play in contention, so they're going to be battling because they need every win as we head down the stretch here. And it's not as if All-Star Game is truly a traditional halfway point. It's not like half the season will be played. It's a lot closer to three quarters, honestly. Because as of right now, the Cavs have played 54 games. They will have 58 games in the books when we hit the All-Star break in Cleveland. Now, speaking of the All-Star break in Cleveland, I've, this was mostly about Levert. I wanted to get this pot up to talk about the Levert trade. We're looking at a Jared Allen playing possessed. Darius Garland, last week I discussed the All-Star results before they happened, and my prediction was that Allen was the surefire All-Star, and Garland would probably get in as an injury replacement for Durant. Well, Garland got in. Fairly easily, I guess, because the guys that got taken out around him, LaMelo Ball didn't make it. I thought there was a distinct chance that LaMelo Ball, because he's a higher profile player amongst, you know, random NBA fandom, and because he is such a flashy player, I thought Darius would have a hard time beating him out, but I am glad that he did on a more successful Cavalier franchise. Darius Garland, however, was not joined by Jared Allen. The main culprit seeming to be. Chris Middleton, who has statistically 
slightly regressed this year. I will say I was surprised Middleton got in as one of the front court reserves, but I don't think it's blasphemous. I think he's a worthy candidate. However, usually when you see that second player on the Bucks get in, if Drew or Middleton got in, I would have expected it last year when they were rolling through the East, but now that the Cavs are right there, actually ahead of them in the standings with the tiebreakers, I didn't think that Middleton was a shoe-in because you had some guys miss out. Neither Hornet got in, LaMelo or Miles Bridges, and Jared Allen missed out. And considering the really the only true front court player in there right now is Joel Embiid because Sabonis didn't make it, Siakam didn't make it, you've got a lot of guys who made the front court reserves who are more diminutive guys, I guess. Jimmy Butler, Jason Tatum, Chris Middleton. They put DeRozan in the backcourt as a guard, despite the fact he's really more of a forward now. But Allen didn't make it. And Allen has since come out and ripped off two massive games. 29 points, a 2020 game against the Hornets. And then, of course, this game where he had 17 boards, 15 points. He is making the case to be the guy to be plugged in. For that to happen, it means neither of the worthy Hornet guys, Miles Bridges or LaMelo Ball, will get in if they put Allen in. But from a roster fit standpoint, there isn't another true big man on the East roster. So I do think they should put Allen in. There's plenty of guard representation. There's plenty of wings. We don't need more of that. What we need is the Fear the Fro namesake in the All-Star game. And I expect to see it. A couple of big games against Jakob Pertl if he's not traded, followed up by another big game against Sabonis and whatever tiny big man, six foot five Terry or, you know, Goga, whoever they roll out there. Allen can roll through these next two games and get plugged into the home all star game in Cleveland. I do hope that counts for something. I do hope that if the people are on the fence about who to plug in, they decide, well, you know what? Not only is Jared Allen deserving. But it's a good story to have two Cavs in the game. So let's make that happen. I was wrong, but I'm happy. However, I did think the runway for Allen to get in was a lot easier, so I was a bit surprised when they announced the reserves on February 3rd. His case is not closed, though. And there's always time for injuries. There's more games to be had. People could back out. Speaking of a travesty, I don't know that I would have put in Draymond Green. And I'm a notorious Draymond Green hater. Everybody knows that. I would have said that if the guy was averaging a triple-double. But he's not. Triple-single, still. 7-7-7, seven, seven, and seven, roughly. He made it. And DeJounte Murray didn't make it. Uh, Brandon Ingram didn't make it. I think Murray should have made it. I think he will make it because Draymond is injured as the old declining player that he is. But there's a lot of disparagement I could careen off into. I'm just going to try to keep it into my predictions here, which is that I think Allen's getting in, and I think DeJounte Murray's getting in. Now, to another guy who made the All-Star game, James Harden, who is in the news for other reasons, it is interesting to look at this Karis LeVert deal and realize just a year ago, the Nets, in their pursuit of James Harden, gave up multiple picks and sent away Jared Allen and Karis LeVert. But Houston took back neither guy. Now, You have Jared Allen, who's on the brink of an all-star berth with the Cavs, and you have Levert being reunited in a a roundabout way. There are some six-degree type situations happening here. The Nets sent Jared Allen and Torian Prince to the Cavs. The Cavs moved Torian Prince for Ricky Rubio, 
Ricky Rubio went down with a season-ending injury, and now he was sent to the Pacers to reunite Levert and Allen. So two guys, which the Rockets could have had, but opted for draft picks instead, have now found their way to Cleveland. They have benefited from this Harden trade, who is not even guaranteed to remain with the Nets long-term if you want to believe all the rumors that are going on. There's a lot of talk of, will James Harden be moved for Ben Simmons? And my view on that rumor and that situation is as follows. James Harden could hit unrestricted free agency this summer. There is a real risk, if you're the Brooklyn Nets, that if James Harden isn't happy, he could do to the Nets what Kyrie Irving did to the Boston Celtics. He could walk out and they could essentially get nothing for him. Now that's probably a long shot because even if Harden leaves in free agency, if he truly decides that he wants to be elsewhere and that team doesn't have cap space to just give him a deal outright, then he's going to need the Nets' cooperation in getting him there. If he does want to be reunited with the Sixers, he can essentially leverage the Nets into taking Simmons for him because they won't want to lose Harden for nothing. If their choices are Harden walks away and takes the most money he can get to play somewhere else besides us because he doesn't like what Kyrie's doing or he doesn't want to be the second or third fiddle on this team anymore, well then, they're going to want to recoup something. And in that scenario, despite what we see in these rumors about, well, no, the Nets, they want they want Maxi too, or they want other pieces along with Simmons. They'll take Simmons if it's Simmons or nothing. So Harden will have all the power, 90% of the power this summer when he hits free agency because the Nets will have a credible risk of him walking away. However, if the Nets move him before the trade deadline, they have a lot more ability to recoup a package that they feel is fair. Not many teams are going to roll that dice, though, knowing that Harden intends to see what his options are this summer. So do I think a deal for Simmons could happen? I think it's possible. I think it all depends on the validity of whether that truly is where Harden wants to go. The Nets, though, may choose to say, we're not trading him before the deadline, which is those are the reports I'm seeing today that Nash is saying. We're not going to move Harden before the deadline. We're going to see if we can roll this out in the playoffs, win a title, and then reassess in the summer. There is a lot of risk, though, however, because if Harden does want out, he can do to the Nets what Irving did to the Celtics, which was they gave up all these draft picks. They sent away Allen, who's an all-star level player. They sent away Levert, who hopefully will become an all-star level player. And they did it for a season and a half of Harden. That's exactly kind of what happened to the Celtics. They were banking on this veteran being added to their two superstars, turning them into a championship level team. And a year and a half later, Kyrie Irving boned them. It is kind of deliciously ironic that Harden has the ability to do the same thing to Kyrie and Durant. And who knows, maybe by the time the playoffs roll around, some things have changed and Irving's able to play every day. We just don't know. But I would love if the end result of this situation is that the Nets offloaded a ton of picks, Levert and Allen, and the primary beneficiary of that whole arrangement, when they were just a third party, was our Cleveland Cavaliers. That's this, that's the podcast for today. Wanted to get on and talk about Levert. There will be more to talk about. I didn't even dive into the whole Hornets ridiculousness. But thank you for listening. This is the Fear the Fro podcast. I'm Bob Schmidt, the voice of Fox Sports Radio. If you haven't subscribed already, or if you want to leave a review, I would be in your debt.
I really appreciate everybody who's jumped on the podcast. I've been amazed at how many of you have found this, and I appreciate it. I love doing it. I love talking Cavs, and I think everybody loves what we're seeing this season. Great day to be a Cavs fan. Thank you for listening. More Fear the Fro podcast on the way. Okay, that's enough. Stop it! This has been another Fear the Fro podcast. That was pathetic. If you enjoyed what you heard today, put it on the highlight reel. Please consider subscribing. Check out FroPod.com for more Cavaliers and NBA coverage. That's what's on display here.